Have your Bibles. Please open to Psalm 4 today. Psalm 4. It's uh, page 528 in your pew Bible. I'll ask you to stand as we read from God's holy word here for Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayers. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set himself apart, his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin when you are on your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifice of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Please have a seat. Let's pray. Dear Lord, week after week, day after day, we are sitting in awe of the fact that you have given us your word. And these words are life to us. They let us know who you are. They guide us in our paths to come. We pray that you would illuminate Psalm 4 for us today. Help us to understand it and use it and digest it in our lives so that we may walk even more stronger in faith. In your name, amen. There's nothing quite like that feeling of going to sleep or lying down in your bed at night, getting ready. You just need a really good night's sleep and not being able to fall into sleep like you were every other night that week. Now, at first you think it's no big deal. Well, okay, it's been a couple minutes. Maybe my brain just needs to wind down. But minute after minute, hour after hour, it finally sinks in. You're having a night of insomnia. And that's the worst feeling. I mean, maybe not the worst, but it's not a good feeling. When you're trying to go to sleep and you're watching the clock, and it's 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, and you're, you're always doing those mental calculations. Well, if I fell asleep now, I can at least get three hours of sleep, two hours of sleep. I used to joke with my family that the nights I would in inevitably have insomnia would be Saturday night, because no matter what, I have to get up here and preach. And there have been some Sundays I honestly cannot remember what I said during a sermon, because I had no sleep the night before. I'm no good when that happens. It makes you really appreciate what people with chronic insomnia go through when you have those rare nights. Because people who cannot get to sleep night after night, they will try almost anything. And on top of normal drugs and therapy, they try all sorts of homebrew techniques. And I looked up a bunch of these, things people have legitimately tried to go to sleep. One of them is, and this must have been a while ago, is to take the earwax of a dog and spread it on your teeth. It's supposed to help you get to sleep. Some people have tried eating raw onions before bed. Some people will have advised you need to watch videos of people doing crossword tournaments, which I guess is the most boring thing in the world. And one, which actually I've, I've heard actually kind of works, is breathing only in and out through your left nostril. 
you pinch your right and you just breathe through your, I don't know. But when your sleeplessness is caused, not because your body just can't shut down, but because you have a lot of things going on, you have a lot of worries and anxieties, and life is crushing you, then it goes beyond using dog earwax. You need something far more. You need something that will help give you a peace that passes all understanding. It's the only way to really get good sleep. And here, as we return to the Psalms this summer, as we go back to this book of wonderful, relatable songs to the Lord, here in Psalm 4, we see that David is in the middle of a crisis. And David cannot sleep. He's tossing, he's turning, he's struggling with an issue. And he can't get to sleep. And it's really relatable here when we look at that and we think of the nights that we lay awake because we have some problem in our life. We have some sort of crisis that cannot be resolved that day. Maybe we've had a fight with somebody we love. Maybe we're struggling to make ends meet. Maybe we just there's somebody who we love is going through something and we can't do anything other than to pray for them. And so we lay awake and our stomach is clenched and our mind is whirling, and we need that sleep. And so how do we get it? How do we get that peace? How do we finally able to shut our eyes and slip into sleep? I think Psalm 4 is a really good way of guiding us into that. Psalm 4 has been known as an evening psalm, which is Christians throughout all of history have recited this in the evening before they've gone to bed. And it's a, it's a really good way of guiding us through this process that David went through in his own struggle, his own crisis. So there is a story here in Psalm 4. And we kind of have to tease it out of these verses, but I think it really helps us to relate to what this man went through. So in the first verse, we see that David has crumpled up his bedsheets. He's been tossing, he's turning, he's in distress. He's walking the halls of the palace after midnight. Maybe he's gone down to the kitchen for a pint of mint chocolate chip ice cream. I don't know. But we do know is he can't sleep. He is in great personal distress. So what's keeping him up? What's keeping this man up at night? Well, we start to see the picture of this. We start to see an inkling of what's keeping him up in verse 2. In Psalm 4, verse 2, where David then abruptly addresses a group of men, a group of powerful men in his country who have risen up to oppose him. Now in the original Hebrew, the language here used for the, these men suggests the movers and shakers of the country. Every country has them. Every community has them. They're the powerful people. They're not just the politicians. They're the wealthy people. They're the con well-connected people. They're the people you want on your side whenever you have a big project you want to get done. And all of these people seem to have united against David. They have risen up against him, and not just him, but against God. We always think that maybe being a king would be the easy life. That'd be you're on top of everything, right? You have all the power, your word is law, yet that's not always the way it goes. When kings have opposition rise up against them, it's very hard to govern effectively. In fact, if enough people rise up against you, you may wake up without your head on your shoulders. Just assassination tends to be a thing. Kings have a never-ending stream of problems, petitioners coming to them saying, fix this, fix that. I want you to be on my side. 
So being a king on a good day is not a restful job. And for David, it's not a good day at all. So what does a king do when he has a problem? He phones a friend. You remember back, it's probably like 10, 15 years ago, but do you remember that weird time in America when who wants to be a millionaire was like all the rage and every one of us couldn't be reached from like 7 to 7.30 at night because all of us were glued to the TV watching Regis and the latest contestant. It was a weird period. It was like four or five months. That's all we could talk about. And every night we would watch these contestants sweating bullets as they answered the most obviously, you know, we, we at home were like, we know the answers, but they're on the hot seat. And if they didn't know the answers, they had a few, a few helper aides that would help them through that. They could take away a couple of the answers and narrow it down a little bit. But we always remember that one of the, thing, one of the tricks that they had up their sleeves is that they could phone a friend. And we, I think all of us sitting at home watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire always had in our mind who the person would be that we would call if we were ever, ever fortunate enough to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And we knew the person who we would call who would be the smartest person, maybe it would be that person who just knows everything, about, a little bit about everything and all manners of trivia, but we had in our mind who we would call if we had to phone a friend. So for King David, when he is in the middle of a crisis, when he's looking at, how do I deal with the situation? How do I deal with just my stress over the situation? Who do I call? He calls the smartest and wisest person he knows. He calls God. God is his phone-a-friend. Because as the text says there, what is God? God is righteous. And what does righteous mean? He is right 100% of the time. No person on who wants to be a millionaire that called their phone-a-friend that friend was right 100% of the time. Sometimes that friend could be horribly wrong. But for David, he knew God was fully righteous. That whatever God said was right, whatever God did was right. So of course you would want to go to him. With You have this sort of extreme problem. So to help get into this sleep, God, David brings this situation to God. He says, God, I am struggling. I want to throw myself on your mercy. I need help. It's a really great reminder for us that all of our problems, big problems, small problems, we need to be, our, our reflex needs to be instantly, let's go to God with that. We need to instantly go to God. I think for a lot of us, we put it right down there at maybe number 19 on our to-do list, right after texting Cousin Phil and maybe before emailing our congressman or something. We go, oh yeah, I should pray to God about that. And God says, no, number one. Your very first thing, you have a small problem in your life, call me. Big problem, call me. I will never get annoyed with you. Call me for everything. I can be your phone-a-friend, and I can give you the right advice. So moving on to verses 3 through 5, David then is, he's addressing this group of opposition. He's basically rebuking them in very harsh terms. This opposition that's risen up against his kingship here in Israel. So how does David defend himself to these men that are accusing him of something, that are opposing him about something? I find it very interesting the way David defends himself, that he has many different options at his disposal. But instead of pointing to everything he's done, 
for the people of Israel in the past, or making like a politician would make crazy promises about the future, David simply reminds them of who put David on the throne in the first place. That's his defense. David says this. He says, Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. He's making an argument of identity here. He's saying, this is who I am. He's saying, don't you know who I am? I belong to God. Don't attack me. I belong to God. I am God's faithful servant, and God knows this. He has set me apart as special, and he responds to me when I pray to him. Think long and hard about the words you say to me, because I am set apart by God. And so really, I mean, most people's mouths, this would be an audacious, almost boastful claim. But for David, it's a wonderful way of looking at how David sees himself. He doesn't see himself as great based on his own accomplishments. He sees himself wholly and fully the product of how God sees him. Have you ever really thought about what makes up your own identity? About when you describe yourself to other people, how do you do that? How do you tell somebody about who you are? Maybe it's about your job. A lot of times when you meet somebody new, you say, well, what do you do? And they say, well, I'm a tax accountant. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a gas station attendant, whatever. And that, for a lot of people, is a big part of their identity. But of course, that could change based on your job situation. Big part of your identity could be wrapped up in your family, in your accomplishments, your title, your wealth, your sexuality, what clubs or organizations you're part of, your hobbies. There's a lot of things that go into making up our identity. Well, sometimes your identity might even be based on who you know. I don't think I've ever met somebody who, well, let me back up. Everybody I've met who has in turn met somebody famous will always and forever name drop that fact into every conversation they've ever had. So if Jim has met Seinfeld at Baskin-Robbins one day, he'll work that into the conversation so that in your eyes, he'll no longer be Jim. He'll be Jim who met Seinfeld because his self-worth has suddenly gone up. His identity has suddenly increased based on who he knows and who knows him. So this is important because when we look at how David identifies himself, his name drops God. That's, it's more important for him to say, I know God and God knows me as a, part, as a key integral part of his identity than, hey, by the way, I slew Goliath and I have all these military victories and I've ruled as a successful ruler over Israel and I have written the Psalms. I have done all these things. He doesn't care. His identity is, I know God, God knows me. That's the bottom line. That's the most important thing. I belong to God. And everything that David says about God, by the way, we can say as well as his children. If you base your self-worth on your own accomplishments, on how other people feel about you, then I guarantee you, sooner or later, you will let yourself down. You will feel let down because your identity will take a hit when people say, oh, I don't care. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who knows you. But if you base your self-worth and your identity on the fact that God knows you, God has called you by name, 
when you pray to God, He answers that call. That God has set you apart as special. That He has called you to Himself. If you base your self-worth and identity in that, it is bulletproof. It will never let you down. And that is a great way to slip into sleep. John 1 tells us that Jesus came to His own, but His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to be called the children of God. He gives you this right. So that even God Himself, when you say, hey guys, God knows me, and I know Him. Even God Himself won't rebuke you. God won't come down and say, what are you making that claim for? He'll say, yes, you are my child. You are the one I love. You have that right to that identity forever. And that's why David is rejoicing into that. So after a couple of verses of harshly rebuking his opposition, David then reveals in verse 6 what the population of Israel is up to. And it's here that the final piece of this story puzzle clicks into place. Why David can't sleep. And it turns out, as he tells God, he says all of the people are starving. And they're coming to him looking for a solution to a countrywide famine. That's what's going on in Israel at this time. It's that people can't eat. They have no food. Now, I think it's really hard for us to relate to that. Because unless maybe we lived through the Great Depression, and I, I don't know, Bill, have you? Did, no? I, if you haven't lived through the Great Depression, then maybe the closest we've ever gotten to a famine was last year when toilet paper ran out at CVS. And we started loudly and bully compl- complaining that we wouldn't have toilet paper to wipe our bums in the next week. That was the closest we've ever gotten. And maybe we went to the supermarket and we, we were a little taken aback that some things were sold off the shelf. But we still had food. Today we're celebrating the fact that we live in a country that has not just great amounts of freedom, but we have great amounts of almost everything. That God has blessed us with so much that we don't really know starvation and hunger. And so when we look at this story, this account of David and what Israel's going through, I think we really need to step back and to empathize with what it means to not have food, with not to know where your next meal is coming from, where the people are coming up to the palace and they are banging on the doors and they are holding out an empty plate and they're saying, King, give us just a handful of grain. Give us just a little bit of food so that I could go home and make bread for my child to eat so that they will not die. Where is my next meal coming from? How are you going to fix this? And David cares about this. He's their king. He's their shepherd. He loves the people. And he's up at night turning and twisting, going, I can't solve this problem. Even though I'm a king, even though my word is law, I can't suddenly make it rain. I can't suddenly make the crops come up. I don't have enough money to go to neighboring countries and buy enough food to import it so everybody has enough to eat. David acknowledges his limitations. So instead of pointing at himself as an answer to all of their problems, instead David does this. He says, we need to look to the Lord expectantly 
that he will provide for us because he has done it in the past. Our God will provide. We need to be faithful. We need to tighten our belts. We need to ignore the rumbling in our bellies. And we need to look forward expectantly in the hope of the day when God will come through to us, for us, and he will provide. And on a greater level than just David saying, you know, in the weeks ahead, God will provide this food. He is also pointing way forward to the Messiah and how we would be given a Savior who would provide for us food and water, not just of the, of the temporary variety, but a bread of life and a water of life that would fill us up and provide for us forever. He is pointing to the moment where the fullness of this blessing would provide us with peace and joy and restoration. And that we get to look upon that and say, our God provides. Even if we lack food, even if we lack toilet paper, even if we don't have electricity one day or we lose our job, whatever we're going through that we feel lack, we know that God still provides. He provides the most important thing in our life, which is our eternal security and our salvation of a peace right now on earth, of knowing that a God who is your God cares for you and he is faithful to provide for you. That's how we are able to sleep. But finally, we look at the last verse here and we see that a a country here that is gripped in the crisis of a famine And during this famine, this opposition rises up thinking that they can overthrow David's government. They're using this crisis as an opportunity to attack David and attack the throne. We would think that there is no chance of David getting a wink of sleep. Yet in verse 8, that's exactly how the story concludes. We start with David tossing, turning. We see the the scope of the problem. And then in verse 8, He fluffs up his pillow, curls himself around the royal teddy bear, and he falls into the deepest slumber he's ever had. How can that be? That's the question I ask myself. How can that be? How can David possibly claim to have found peace when this situation, this crisis, is still ongoing? It hasn't resolved by verse 8. They don't suddenly have food by verse 8. The people who are opposing him haven't suddenly stopped. This crisis is still going. Well, the reason David can go to sleep is because this king has confidence in his own king. And he trusts God with his security. He trusts God with his safety. Throughout the course of this psalm, David is reminded that God has never let him down to date. He never will. And so he commits his life to God. And he sleeps like a baby in his father's arms. To trust God and to worship Him when things are good is is right and is easy, but it is much harder to worship God when you're in the middle of a crisis, when you don't see how it's going to resolve, when you don't see the other end of the problem. It's harder to come to God to worship, but when we do it, God is glorified to an even greater amount. Our faith builds to an even stronger than it was before. And that is what David is reminding us, is that when the economy is in a free fall, 
when our pantries are thinning out, when our relationships are on the rocks, when we have a problem with no clear solution, we worship God and He is glorified. And in turn, He gives us peace. He tells you, it's okay if you don't know how this is going to resolve because I am the Lord and I love you and I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of you. When I, when I was a kid, that's all I wanted to hear from my parents. If I was going through something, I just would want to hear from them, it's okay, I'll take care of you. And if I heard those words from them, I'd breathe easier. I'd sleep better because it would be okay. And that's what God is saying to you. You can only have this kind of sleep that David falls into here if you have an absolutely sovereign God who absolutely loves you. Accept no substitutes. Accept nothing less. David says in this last verse, For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. There's nothing else, Lord. Nobody else who makes me feel this safe. Nobody else who makes me feel this confident in my future. You alone. That's why I can start snoring right now. This is such an important message. David thought this is such an important lesson that he took it, he put it down into song, and then he distributed it through the choir master, the official, they had a royal choir master over Israel. He said, I want you to take this song, and I want you to teach it to every man, woman, and child so that we all learn to sing about how God gives us this peace, even when we're in the middle of it, and we're in the middle of it hard, that we can go to sleep knowing that God has this situation under control because he loves you. He loves us. So maybe if you're having a hard time sleeping tonight, don't go to the raw onions. Don't go to the earwax. Go to Psalm 4. Pray it out loud. Realize the truth of these words when David says, you alone, Lord, you alone make me fall asleep in safety. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, any given Sunday, there's always somebody in these church halls that's going through a really tough situation. Maybe we're not sharing it. Maybe we've only told it to a few people. Maybe it's really embarrassing. Maybe it's so scary that we just don't know how it's going to play out. And if it, we're not those people today, Lord, we might be in a month, we might be in a year, but we need to know that you are our Lord. We need to know your character. We need to know how you are passionate and driven to provide for us and to bundle us up. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would know this simple truth. We would know that you are our God, that you love us. You have set us apart as your own. We are your sheep, Lord. We are weak. We are frail. We are prone to getting lost. We are nervous, we are scared, and yet when our shepherd's arms are around us, we can go to sleep knowing that we are secure. Wrap your arms around us, Lord. Wrap your arms especially around those who need it right now so bad that they're crying at night, they're crying to you. They need to feel you, Lord. They need to know that you are their God. In your name, amen.